thank you for being a friend Travel down the road and back again Your heart is true You're a pal and a confidant If you threw a party And invited everyone you knew You would see biggest gift would be for me and the card attached would say thank you for being a friend hello everybody uh, thank you so much for tuning in to Beloved Journal every week. It means so much to me that you yourself choose to listen to this podcast and uh, listen to what I have to say, but more importantly to what our guests have to say. We have an incredible guest for you uh, today, and I hope you will enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed recording this interview. Uh, Dr. Gary Scott Smith is Professor of History Emeritus at Grove City College, where he taught from 1978 to 2017. He is now retired, living the life in Wilmington, North Carolina. He chaired the history department while at the college, though, and he holds a Master of Divinity degree uh, from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, along with a Master of Arts and Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins University. He has written extensively on the faith of the United States presidency and is considered an expert in the field. He's also written books on Jackie Robinson's, on Winston Churchill's, and Hillary Clinton's faith as well. Dr. Smith currently serves on my dissertation committee at the Pacific School of Religion, as my doctoral work is on the faith of the American presidency. And you can check out more of that on our sister podcast, So Help Me Pod. You can search that wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you find that meaningful as well. But for today, he's on Beloved Journal, and we're so grateful that he's here. I certainly felt that like I was sitting at the feet of a master in this podcast, so I know you will enjoy it as well. Uh, with that in mind, let's listen in. Dr. Gary Smith, thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal. My pleasure to be with you, Rob. Well, well, Gary, I was telling my mom before I had this interview with you that you are what I want to be when I grow up. You have accomplished so much in the field that I am so passionate about but my question is, how how did you find yourself uh, so interested and so kind of in this in the middle of the intersection of presidential history and religion? Well, I suppose it goes all the way back to eighth grade, Rob, uh, when I first uh, became very interested in uh, the presidents, and eventually I went on to. Johns Hopkins and got a PhD in American religious history. And so that's been my career area of research and publications. And I had written a, a couple other books before I got interested in the presidency and religion, but uh, I was really intrigued by the fact that A, very little had been done as of the year 2000 when I started my research on the faith of presidents. And I reasoned that it was a very important topic that had been sorely neglected and that that would be a fruitful topic to explore and that lots of people would be potentially interested in knowing about the faith of presidents. Because we've, you know, we've long had a fascination with our presidents. 
pretty much every facet of their lives has been mined in one way or another. But uh, prior to the early part of the 21st century, uh, very little had been done in exploring the faith of presidents, especially how it impacted them in their time in office. Um, and so I decided to explore that issue at length. I was blessed to get some good uh, money from the Earhart Foundation in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that allowed me to go to a wide variety of presidential libraries and do research there and, and see materials that no one else had perhaps ever seen or at least had ever written about. So that was a that was a huge blessing uh, over the course of my research to have that funding. And it was a, it was really fun to go and be in the archives and find things that no one else had ever talked about. And also then I would be there and I would go to the muse their museums and compare how they presented themselves in their museums with how I saw their role as presidents and talk about it, if there was any faith connection in their museums, uh, depending on who the presidents were. So that's how I got interested in it. And as you well know, uh, in the last 15 years or so, uh, I published my first book on the faith of presidents in 2006. And since that time, there has been an expansion of interest in the subject and a lot more written about it by a wide variety of scholars, some individual religious biographies and some collections uh, of various presidents like my two books. So, so I, I, I'm, I, my mind's spinning because I, I just, I imagine it must've been the most incredible feeling uh, to, to be in those archives and to unearth some of that stuff that was being, that you were finding uh, that, that may have been passed over for whatever reason. It just wasn't being researched or whatever. I mean, that just must've been an incredible feeling, but I, I'm curious. I want to go back to the eighth grade for a second. Was there any aspiration uh, on your part to be president? Is there like a Gary Smith, like bumper sticker or something that we were missing somewhere in the annals of history? Or, or is this just because uh, what is, what is it about the presidency that caused you to literally give your life and career uh, to study a portion of it? Well, no, I never had an aspiration to be president of the United States, although I was on student council in high school and I was a student government representative in college and in seminary, I was a vice president for uh, academic affairs. So I've had a wide variety of governance experiences on a much lower level. Uh, I think it was the fact that I think sometimes we attribute too much power to presidents, um, particularly in terms of how they might shape the economy. I mean, if the economy is going great guns, we say, you know, what a great president. If it's doing poorly, we blame the president. And they really have not that much influence on how the global economy functions. But they do have a lot of impact on foreign policy, and they certainly have a lot of impact on selected domestic policies, and they certainly have potentially great influence on shaping the character of our country and getting their strongest interests uh, out there in the media. You know, Teddy Roosevelt referred to the presidency as the bully pulpit, so a chance to exalt whatever issues they think are important into the public consciousness. So maybe it's a form of hero worship uh, on some level. Um, there are certainly, our presidents are certainly among our greatest heroes, but 
you know, we've got sports heroes and we've got celebrities and invention and, and a wide variety of other fields. But I've just found the presidents to be rather fascinating in terms of their uh, their backgrounds, their contributions, what they did before and in some cases after their time in office. It's so funny um, that I'm that we're actually doing this podcast today because I was in the car rider line picking up my daughter and I was reading your book, Religion in the Oval Office. I mean, like it's kind of a surreal, you know, meta moment of just, you know, worlds colliding because I'm, of course, you, for full disclosure, you're on my dissertation committee. Um, but that said, I think your book is really helpful for the work I'm doing. And, and, and so I, I'm curious, you know, like that book, it's a hefty book. You you did a lot of research on it. You you learned a lot. What was there something in that book that really surprised you beyond all else as you were doing research? Was there something that you came across that was like, oh my gosh, this is really profound that you felt other people might not know and you might like to share? And by the way, people should of course buy the book. But I mean, what what about that book in particular? That one's the one that's really impressed me the most of your work. Um what about it surprised you as you wrote it? Well, just for a little context here. So I wrote the first book, Faith in the Presidency, and it came out, as I mentioned, in 2006. And originally I had included 14 different presidents in that book, and it was about a thousand pages and way beyond what an academic publisher wanted to um, publish and so fortunately, I had a very good editor at Oxford University Press who helped me pare down about 30% of it. But it also involved getting rid of three chapters, which then I then decided later on when the book you referred to came out that I would do a second volume of 11 more presidents, which at the time gave me 50% uh, of the presidents. And arguably, the 50% for whom religion was the most significant, with the exception of, of Garfield, and I didn't talk about him because I was focusing on public policy. And when you get shot three and a half months into your presidency and die seven months into your presidency, there's not a lot of public policy to be analyzed. So I think what, what surprised me the most was simply the how significant the faith of presidents was and how it could be so much neglected by their biographers. I mean, so many presidents kind of echoed the famous statement of Abraham Lincoln that I I got down on my knees to pray to God, I'm paraphrasing, uh, because I didn't know where else to go. I mean, the immense pressures of my office, um, particularly when you get into the 20th century and the United States is arguably the global leader, uh, decisions that are going to impact the entire nation and the entire world, uh, who wants to make those decisions on their own without Obviously, you want to have a great cabinet, you want to have trusted advisors, you want to have the House and Senate on your behind what you're doing. But ultimately, if you don't have a divine, if if God is not important in your life and you don't believe that God is providentially controlling the universe, then I think that puts you in a very precarious uh, and anxiety-filled situation. And so, you know, so many presidents have said, in the toughest of times, my I went to God and my faith was strengthened when I was in office. Uh, Barack Obama has said that. Numerous other presidents have said the same thing. But just to give you one tidbit along the lines of what you're talking about. So few people would understand that, that Franklin Roosevelt 
who's not necessarily known as one of our most religiously devout presidents, but he was the senior warden of an Episcopal church in uh, <clears throat> Hyde Park, New York, uh, called St. James, the entire time he was president of the United States. And he really made no political capital about it. He didn't really publicize it. Uh, he would often interrupt meetings of uh, in the Oval Office to take a call from the other senior warden back in New York to talk about business of the church. Um, you know, he's got this billion dollar budget of as president and he's uh, trying to balance a hundred thousand dollar budget of the local Episcopal church because it's really important to him. So, I mean, I could give you many other illustrations along that line. Um, one of my favorite stories is um, this is in the volume you just referred to religion in the Oval Office is uh, John Quincy Adams, who's one of our most religious presidents, uh, typically went to church three times every Sunday in Washington, D.C. You go to a Presbyterian church in the morning, an Episcopal church in the afternoon and a Unitarian church in the evening or vice versa. Um, but anyway, he was he almost drowned in the Potomac one uh, one early in his presidency. And uh, when when he, when he managed to get back to the boat and not drown, you know, he again gave credit to God for sparing him. Um, Ronald Reagan had the same kind of experience after he was shot. You know, he said, "You know, why did God keep me alive? What's my purpose?" Uh, which is an interesting question to ask when you're already president of the United States. But he basically rededicated his life to God at that point, and uh, his faith was much stronger uh, after the Hinckley. Uh, shots hit him than they had been before. So uh, on and on the stories go, but there there were lots of tidbits like that that uh, were intriguing, or just to know that a president was in touch with religious leader uh, through correspondence or meetings that had not been discussed before in print that I had seen. It, it, it's so interesting, um, you know, looking... Um looking in more recent and even current events, which is dangerous sometimes for historians to do. Um, the likely candidates for both parties in the 2024 election couldn't be farther apart in their own personal religious expression or experience. Um, and recognizing that you are a historian and not a pundit, and I'm not asking you to weigh in on that. I, I wonder how you see this, though, divergence, if you will, of religious experience and viewpoints between political parties, candidates, what have you. Uh, does that portend something for this country? Does that say something about where this country is currently, uh, as opposed to where it's been in the past? Well, as you all know, uh, we've had a significant increase of nuns in the last 15 years. That is, people with no religious affiliation. Um, church attendance is down, partly relating to the pandemic, partly relating to younger generations that uh, don't seem to be as interested in being involved in the life of the church as their parents and grandparents have been. That said, um, numerous polls in the 20th century, 21st century have indicated that Americans want their presidents to be people of faith. Uh, they don't want them to be religious zealots. That scares them. Um, but they want them to have solid faith. They want them to be people who pray. Um, they want to be people who have a moral compass. I'm speaking in generalities here. Uh, and they feel more comfortable when that's the case. Now, Republicans 
historically, um, at least since Eisenhower, have been more oriented toward um, religion. Their, their presidential candidates and presidents have been more outspoken about religious faith than, than Democrats. But that's not to say that for there are exceptions there. Obviously, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, even Barack Obama uh, have talked quite a bit about their faith. They've been interviewed by Christianity Today. They've been interviewed by other religious outlets. They've been um, they've talked about their faith in the campaign trail. They participated in faith forums. So, you know, all that all that kind of stuff um, has been significant. But any Democrat, as Hillary Clinton experienced in 2016, um, has a tougher road to hoe when campaigning because the Democratic Party has a wider spectrum uh, philosophically, religiously than the Republican Party. And you've got a lot more people who are nuns, unchurched, uh, even professed atheists or even antagonistic toward religion. Um, And you don't have that long association since the 1980s with uh, conservative religion and their party that make it more difficult. It's a broader tent. It's a bigger umbrella. And even though I argue in a book that I just have coming out on the faith of Hillary Clinton, I argue that her faith has been a driving force in her life. Uh, I argue she didn't do as much with um, her faith in the campaign as she might have. And in a really closely contested election, it might have been enough to make the difference if she'd gotten just a couple percent higher of the evangelical vote, if she'd even gotten what Barack Obama had gotten. So anyway, that that said, um, there's certainly been um, in, in recent times, I mean, all the way back to Eisenhower, we've had presidents who've had liaisons to particular religious communities. Uh, and during the campaigns, we've had liaisons to Catholics, to evangelicals, to sometimes mainline Protestants, to Jews. Um, So there have been efforts to reach out to specific religious communities. um, And to the extent that they've been successful, they've helped candidates win elections, especially ones that have been very, very close. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Hillary Clinton. Uh, You know, Secretary Clinton is one of those people who is is probably as close to have been president as as anyone else could have been. Uh, So I think it's fair to sometimes include her in these conversations. And when I think of Secretary Clinton, I think she's more Methodist than some Methodist ministers I know. I mean, she is she is profoundly convicted by her faith. And that influenced, of course, her 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 husband, uh, President Clinton. Uh, and they often attended Foundry Church in, in D.C., which is a beautiful Methodist church. And 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 it, and it's not only attending church, right? Like the 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 deep personal convictions of the people who have either been, a, you know, right there at the office, like Secretary Clinton, or, or people who have held that office. It is both personal and it is public, and, and that has always fascinated me because it's easy to, in some senses, I get. I mean, there's obviously logistical concerns to attend church as president. It could be e- it could be considered easy to attend a church, but to to have that personal deep conviction is it might be a little more difficult uh, when you're dealing with the affairs of state, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've got examples of of presidents who were fairly uh, outspoken publicly about faith, 
but had little private faith to speak of. And when that happens, we tend to think that that's a, a political ploy, ploy, that it's perhaps disingenuous, that it's a put on simply to influence voters. On the other hand, we've had some candidates who've been very, very personally pious. Uh, Jimmy Carter stands out to me, uh, and, and he certainly spoke a lot on the campaign trail about his faith, but he was somewhat guarded as president, uh, part of that Baptist separation of church and state mentality. Um, you know, I don't want to infringe upon the, uh, the the lack of faith of some other Americans. I, I certainly don't want to be seen as overstepping my boundaries and being f too favorable toward uh, Baptists. Or, you know, same thing with John F. Kennedy. He wasn't religiously, well, he attended mass pretty much all the time, but there's no evidence that he was particularly personally religiously devout. But uh, a lot of Catholic leaders said we would have been better off if Nixon had been elected because uh, Kennedy bent over backwards not to show any favoritism toward the Catholic Church during his time in office. Right. So there's certainly that issue. But back to Clinton. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, raised in a youth group in a Methodist church in Chicago. Um, faith was meaningful, part of a campus fellowship in college. Um when she goes to Arkansas and becomes the wife of the governor, Bill, um, you know, she's very deeply involved in a Little Rock Methodist church. And, you know, she goes around the state giving lectures on Methodism and, and talks about her faith. And as first lady, uh, she's part of a, a women's Bible study as a senator. She's part of a, a Senate prayer group. Um, she reads voraciously in religious devotional literature and, uh, Christianity Today, of all things, one might have thought Christian Century, but no, Christianity Today. Um, you know, her her faith is deeply informing who she is, uh, and therefore influences. I, I try to make a case in the book about public policy and how many policies, and I focus a lot on her time as you call her Secretary Clinton, but as Secretary of State, uh, when she had the ability to shape the agenda of that department of of our government and how much she, her faith determined what she did in terms of reaching out to women and children and trying to improve their opportunities and rights within the world and a variety of other issues that, that she supported. But yeah, so there is a public side, there's the private side. And in some cases, there's a genuine continuity between those two in the life of the president. And sometimes the private's deeper than the public and more often the public is more uh, overt than the private, or more important perhaps than the private. You know, we've had a, a few presidents that were a whisker away from being preachers. Uh, I think of both Adams presidents who could have easily been preachers in their own rights, uh, John Adams being a church-going animal, self-described. I think of uh, James A. Garfield, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, I just finished a fabulous book, a book on him, uh, but, you know, being being a lay preacher um, in the Disciples of Christ, uh you know, preaching whenever he had the opportunity about whatever was on his mind or whatever came to his heart. And then, I, you know, I think I had the opportunity uh, a few years back to preach at Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia, where Jimmy Carter taught Sunday school. And it was a it was a humbling experience to play second fiddle. No one came to hear me preach. They could have cared less about what I said, but they were there to hear the president of the United States teach Sunday school. 
I'm curious, is, do you think there's something personality wise about that, that people, you know, these two professions, these two, two, uh, two realities, President of the United States preaching pastoral ministry, is there a relationship there? Is there, is there something that you see that connects the two or not? Um, not necessarily uh, overtly, but I think you might have the same type of person drawn to both the presidency and politics and to the church and ministry, because they're frankly both great opportunities for service. They're great opportunities to help shape the character of our nation, help push our nation in certain directions. Uh, so that's the connection I guess I would see is that the presidency and the preacher um, share certain uh, similar potential goals and opportunities. I realized that was a dangerous question to ask as a pastor. <laughs> that could have gone a lot of different ways. But it was service is a great answer. Uh, listen, I got you know this this question that's been nagging at me of late um, that I've been thinking about. You know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, some of these earlier presidents. Uh, a lot of people tend to keep praise onto them for their religiosity. And of course, Jefferson, or I mean, excuse me, Washington was a vestryman. Um, you've got some participation in some various ways of the earlier presidents. And yet in some ways, they're not exactly what we would consider part and parcel um, for that of the Christian, you know, mainline or Catholic or evangelical traditions. What do you make of that attempt to, in some ways, uh, either caricaturize or characterize these men as um as something that they uh, they were deists i mean for the in large part or the large parts of their faith were deistic so so how do you how do you how do you separate that out in your own studies well first of all i like to refer to them as borrowing a phrase from a, a colleague at um, the master's college in california as theistic rationalists rather than deists. That's um, fair. That's fair. Yeah. Because because to me, a, a deist, um, at least the traditional deist, and they, they talk about warm deists and you know adjective deists and so on. But the traditional deist doesn't believe in prayer, doesn't believe in providence, and has a very low view of scripture. Okay, um, and I certainly don't see that to be the case for Washington. Um, and Jefferson arguably has a low view of scripture in that he gets rid of four-fifths of it because it's too supernaturalistic. But but both of those guys talk a fair amount about the importance of prayer and the role of providence in American history. So that said, I, I think essentially they were Unitarians. They believe in God the Father, but they don't believe Jesus is divine. They believe he's a great moral teacher. They commit the fallacy that C.S. Lewis says we shouldn't do, right? Um, in mere Christianity, but but that said, um, I would I would argue that why because there are so many Christians in our country who buy into some form of Christian nationalism or some form of America as a Christian nation, um, and it's partly because they're Christians and they want to see our country's history in that way. Partly, it's they're influenced by certain popularizers. Maybe David Barton being the leading one who make that argument, uh, I think, without a lot of subtlety and with a lot of without a lot of <laughs> true uh, footnoting of, of sources. Um, 
so that said, uh, it's if, you, if you're going to think of America as a Christian nation, then you're going to probably paint the founding fathers as much more Christian than they actually were. And there were a number of Christian founding fathers who were deeply Christian. I would I could name, you know, 10 of them probably. But, you know, John Hancock would be one example. Samuel Adams would be another. Uh, Elias Boudino and, and on it goes. Um, Patrick Henry. But certainly not the first three presidents of the United States, all of whom are arguably Unitarians. Um, so anyway, I think it's, uh, and, and you can go to the state constitutions and their mention of God and and even their enshrining of Christianity in some ways within their the documents. Um, so there's a, there's a rich Christian history to our country, but it, there's also a very, um, there are a number of strands that came together from the enlightenment, from what we might later call secular humanism, from Christianity uh, or the Judeo-Christian tradition that make the country what it is. So final question for you, final Jeopardy round. I do want to <laughs> pass my dissertation, so I'm going to be careful how I ask this because it's an impossible <laughs> question to ask. But that said, who is your favorite president and why? Yeah, I, I See, have that's trouble. Impossible. I, I, I lost it right there. Yeah. yeah, but who is your favorite president and why? I have trouble narrowing it down to one individual because I like a lot of them. Uh, they have a lot of great attributes personally, and I think almost all of them did some good for our country. Um, and it's not like, in my judgment, one president is head and shoulders above the rest from a um, religious perspective or even from a policy perspective. I mean, you look at all the polling data and it's Washington, Lincoln, FDR, who tend to dominate as the as the most respected presidents. I mean, as somebody who's a lifelong Republican, uh, it's a moderate Republican, certainly, um, and now an independent. You have to clarify uh, that now, I guess, right? Yeah. Like you can't just, yes. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, who's, yeah. who's drifted from the fold because of certain recent developments. Yep. Um, I, I would, I would, in some ways, I got to like Franklin Roosevelt uh, because I think he was president during extremely tough times, both with the Great Depression and World War II. And he had um, he had a tough line to to follow between those who were pushing for the United States to get into World War II, Winston Churchill being a leading example, but people within this country and then people who, you know, didn't want us to be involved at all and, and felt that it would be disastrous for us to get involved. And I think he did a, a great job of negotiating the, the difficulties there. I, I like a lot of what he says in some of his main addresses about, uh, about the nature of faith. Uh, I love the D-Day prayer that he does right after mm -hmm. the Normandy invasion. Um, so I love the fact that he had a, a, I mean, deeply flawed man like the rest of us, you know, he had an extramarital affair, uh, but still his, his faith, I think was, was deep and meaningful. And I don't think he would have been where he was particularly after he contracted polio without his faith. Well, Dr. Gary Scott Smith, thank you so much, uh, for this time. I could honestly talk to you for hours and I know we will later this semester when we do a, a dissertation review, but I'm so grateful for your witness. I feel like I've already learned so much from you and I, I want to thank you for coming on my podcast. Well, Rob, it's been my pleasure. And and I hope that uh, all your 
uh, research and writing uh, goes well, and I'm looking forward to your defense. I'm sure it'll be uh, a red-letter day. Beloved Journal is a podcast on a mission. Check out our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Today's podcast was hosted by the Reverend Rob Lee. Find him on Twitter at Rob Lee 4 or on Instagram at Rev Rob Lee. You can find our social media on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Beloved Journal and finding our logo. Beloved Journal's theme music is a cover of the Golden Girls theme song done by Mipsa. Seriously, they're the best band in the world. This podcast was the dream of Stephanie Lee and was produced by Maggie the Golden Doodle and Frank the Poodle. Go show the world that it's worth fighting for. And as always, thanks for listening.